a friend of mine sent me this article uh, from USA Today, and I wanted to just kind of go through it, just review it with you guys. The title is, What Do I Love Most About Jehovah's Witnesses? They're a good people from a good tree. You know this is going to be an interesting article. I have not read this article yet. So let's go through it and critique it. See what it has to say. The New Testament tells us we can know people by their fruit. It's particularly relevant for Jehovah's Witnesses, the foot soldiers of Christianity. The foot soldiers of Christianity. This is a picture. It says, a Jehovah's Witnesses enthusiast watches a guest speaker during the 2019 Convention of Jehovah's Witnesses at Chase Field in Phoenix on August 9th, 2019. I've long had a special place in my heart for the Jehovah's Witnesses who last week have descended 40,000 strong on our Phoenix downtown for their Love Never Fails International Convention. If you work in the downtown as I do, you see their families going to and from Chase Field and the Phoenix Convention Center. On August 8th, I saw two Latino families leaving Chase in peasant dresses and vaquero hats and boots. The men and boys wore white shirts with colorful bandanas tied loosely around their necks. The women had paper flowers in their hair. They exuded a quality that is, I think, the hallmark of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They were the picture of wholesomeness. We used to call them the J-dubs when I was a 19-year-old Mormon missionary toiling for converts in the cities of Cincinnati and Louisville. We didn't call them that out of disrespect, but out of familiarity. Yeah, there is a level of familiarity or, or kinship, maybe, between Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I remember thinking that they were very, very wrong, and I would never hang out with one outside of work or something. But they understood what I went through in many ways, because they... They knock on doors, too. I knock on doors, you know, or knocked, at least. That, that was my train of thought at the time. And now I feel even more kinship with ex-Mormons, for example. Or even just regular Mormons. I feel a kinship with them. Because they did go through what I went through. We're the same in many ways. We both went through the same types of behavior modification together. And for that reason, I, I have a lot of respect for Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses both especially ex-Mormons and ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, because we are kin in many ways. So anyways, I do understand that kinship that this person is feeling. Next it says, they were knocking on doors. We were knocking on doors, and we were always running into each other. That experience left me with a deep respect for who they are, because I've done the labor they do routinely throughout their lives, and it's pure trench work. Yep, that's very true. I can agree with that so far. Foot Soldiers of Modern Christianity The Jehovah's Witnesses are the foot soldiers of modern Christianity. Nobody works harder than they do to spread their faith. Mormon men and women go on missions when they're young adults or elderly couples, but they don't sustain that lifelong commitment of spreading a Christian gospel in the most stress-inducing way, knocking on doors. That's true. I can agree with this article so far. As a young LDS missionary, there was nothing I hated more than tracting, an old expression derived from handing out religious tracts. Tracting means going house to house and, with the best intentions, intruding on people's privacy with a message about God and salvation. One never knows what lurks behind those doors. In rural Kentucky, it was an angry man with a shotgun who told us we were trespassing. His gun barrel was quite the exclamation point. He didn't have to tell us twice. Yeah, that's happened to people I know. I've, I've heard 
plenty of stories of people having guns shoved in their faces and stuff, which is wrong, FYI. Just in case anybody was wondering, that's wrong. Don't do that shit. Another time, a fundamentalist Christian entered the door and immediately began speaking loudly in tongues. I'd never seen anything like it, and I thought I was watching The Exorcist. I've never had anybody open the door and immediately start speaking in tongues, but I have had similar experiences with people who do speak in tongues and try to argue with me that it's the right thing to do and that snake handling is is biblical and drinking poison is biblical and all this other crazy stuff. He was apostolic is what he called himself. I think it's kind of a branch of Pentecostal, an extreme branch, as though Pentecostal wasn't extreme enough. Then the article goes on to say, me, I hated going door to door. Eh, I think most people hate it, honestly, like most Jehovah's Witnesses, most Mormons, but they try to find joy in it. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like they they at least put on this plastic smile and say, I'm doing Jehovah's work. I'm doing it for Jehovah, and I'm going to enjoy it. And they find ways to enjoy it, quote-unquote, or to, at least to convince themselves that they enjoy it. Then there was the day two young Mormon missionaries went out tracting after a small-town barber had butchered their hair. We looked like Dumb and Dumber in white shirts and nameplates. Oh, that's funny and sad. I'm sorry, guys. We wanted to hide but couldn't. We had doors to knock on, and one was answered by a little old lady with a gentile... Oh, with a gentle... They misspelled gentle. With a gentle southern accent. Smiling warmly, she said through her screen door, My, it's wonderful to have two handsome young men on my doorstep today. Some people are really nice. Like, some people will invite you in and give you tea and just listen and be super nice. And other people are dickheads. Needless dickheads. Do you think I enjoyed doing that? I mean, do you think I enjoyed being in this stuffy suit in the middle of summer? Long-sleeved suit with a jacket and a tie on in 90, 100-degree weather, driving from street to street, knocking from door to door, facing this awkwardness. Like, the, I, I was not a social person. Most Jehovah's Witnesses are not social people, really. There are some in the congregation who are, but a lot of people are just like, they, they're not used to interacting with people from the outside, really. This is largely the only interaction they get, outside of, like, school and work, because they don't hang out with people who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. Do you think that they're honestly really enjoying that? Of course they're not. It's awful. It's terrible. You have to learn how to improvise. You have to learn how to come up with answers on the spot, and you have to study the magazines to know what you're pitching. You're a salesman. You're a door-to-door salesman, and you're doing it for free. It's awful, and it's it's not helpful. When somebody comes up to you and harasses you, or when you open the door and they start screaming at you or shoving a gun in your face, that shit is not fun at all. It's traumatizing. So be nice to Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your door, because they like it even less than you do, probably. Anyway, moving on with the article. For a moment, we forgot we looked like dorks. We asked her if she'd like to hear a message about the gospel. She said, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm going in this morning to have surgery on both my eyes. Our bubble was burst, and that was tracting. I hated it. Yeah, it sucks. 
Jehovah's Witnesses do it all their lives. It all ended after two years in the mission field, but it never ends for Jehovah's Witnesses. They do it all their lives, and I respect them so much for it that I have made a point of treating them with kindness when they knock on my door. I always take time to talk to them and to take a watchtower or two. Just a quick side note, I would suggest you don't take the watchtowers. This person is right. You should be nice to them. You should treat them with kindness and respect because they like that situation even less than you do. But don't take the watchtowers. Tell them you're not interested in their stuff, but you hope they have a good day and things like that. And tell them to put you on a do not call list because they have a list specifically designed for preventing them from basically harassing people in the neighborhood. Like if you don't want to be visited, they'll put you on a list and they'll come to your house like once every 10 years to make sure that you live there. So just ask them to do that and be as nice as you can because they don't deserve all of the hate that they get. It's not them who's mishandling child abuse. It's not the people on the ground knocking on doors who are doing all of this terrible stuff. It's the governing body who is passing the rules down and who has thoroughly brainwashed people. I blame the governing body, not the individual people on the bottom of the rung. They're just drones who've been convinced they're doing the right thing. Now, they're doing terrible things in the name of the governing body, shunning family members and things like that. That's bad. But they think they're doing the right thing. So I find I'm hard-pressed to blame the individual Jehovah's Witness for all of the terrible shit that the Watchtower Society is doing. I'd rather direct the blame upwards. In the Mormon Church, and I'm sure we're not alone, we embrace a scripture that's, that is to us a sort of test. Matthew 7:20 By their fruits ye shall know them. According to the New Testament, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Meaning that you can know a people or a faith by the way they conduct themselves, the way they raise their families and participate in work and community. There's an understated graciousness. In Arizona journalism, I've known two men who were devout Jehovah's Witnesses. One was a staff illustrator for the Arizona Republic named Tony Bustos. I hope she got the permission to use this person's full name. We worked closely together for many years, launching the first viewpoint section at the Republic about 20 years ago. We became close friends. Over the years, we talked a lot about faith in God, and Tony frequently described to me how his faith had shaped him. It was an exquisite sculptor. Tony was a man of great personal gifts, a talented artist, but a truly exceptional human being. His style was understated graciousness, a friend to anyone at the newspaper who ever needed one. A product of Phoenix North High School, his illustrative style would be instantly recognizable to many of our older readers. I remember once he drew a picture of Arizona Diamondbacks star Luis Gonzalez and his children. And Gonzo's wife went crazy over that picture. She loved it. Tony was overjoyed to give her the original. The second journalist was a former writer and editor for the Scottsdale Progress, East Valley Tribune, and the Arizona Republic. Interesting. Okay, so this is the very end of the article. It says, this is about them when you get a knock. Gary Nelson is one of those people you need in every workplace and every community who's firmly grounded in, in high character and common sense. Men like these are the pillars and posts that hold society together. I don't know about that. Retired now, Gary is an exceptional writer and thinker. He excelled at long meditations on the history of his country and the world. All of his writing was deeply researched and elegantly written. Like Tony... He was understated in his goodness, and despite his understatement, 
He was one of our best storytellers. Tony once told me Gary was a big draw for speaking engagements in the Jehovah's Witness community. They, too, saw his virtues. Goodness and integrity have a power that envelops those who have it. In Tony Bustos and Gary Nelson, those qualities told you that whatever produced them could only come from something good. A good tree. Think about that next time the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door. No. Jehovah's Witnesses have a very specific idea of what goodness is. And they get it right sometimes, they get it wrong other times. A broken clock is right twice a day, they say. Just because you see some good qualities coming from a religion does not mean that religion is correct or should be afforded respect. The people should be afforded respect. All people should be afforded respect. But the religion, the ideas it's presenting, the organization that runs it and pushes those ideas, does it deserve respect? That's really the question here. No. I respect Mormons for a lot of things. I I don't respect Mormonism. It's trash. It's bullshit, all of it, beginning to end. But if you don't pull anything else from this whole clip, just realize that I do respect the people so deeply, and I feel for them, and I feel a kinship for them. I don't respect their ideas, not even a little bit. And just because you see Jehovah's Witnesses seemingly being extra honest or extra hardworking or something doesn't mean that behind the scenes some really terrible shit isn't happening, because it is. So next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, think about the fact that these people are working themselves into the ground, and show them the respect that any person deserves. But don't take their magazines, because that's just going to encourage them. So I saw this article on here, what do I love most about Jehovah's Witnesses? There are good people from a good tree, right? And it's a puff piece about Jehovah's Witnesses, basically what it is. And right after I saw that article, I saw this article, Gatehouse Media Owner to Acquire USA Today. So USA Today has been purchased. It says Gatehouse Media's owner and Gannett, I guess, have agreed to merge in a deal aimed at cutting overlapping costs and enabling the combined company to pursue a digital transformation as the media industry grapples with the disruptive forces of online news, social media, and smartphones. I love it how they worded that. As the media industry grapples with the disruptive forces of online news, social media, and smartphones. They're disruptive forces. I think that's hilarious. The mainstream old print media calls the internet disruptive. Go fuck yourself. It just kills me. It's like they have no, like, they're not keeping up with the times and they're upset by that. I'm sorry. Get it together. Like, if, if you don't like what the internet is doing to your business, then try working with the internet to improve your business. That's what everybody else is doing. If you're failing and you don't like it, then it's your fault. It says, New Media Investment Group said Monday that it reached a deal to acquire Gannett which owns USA Today and more than 100 other daily publications and digital marketing services such as Reach Local. So the point is that USA Today was purchased by a company, Gatehouse Media, and the very next thing that comes out is, what do I love most about Jehovah's Witnesses? There are good people from a good tree. I don't know. I don't think that Jehovah's Witnesses had anything to do with it necessarily. I just think that this is like a very, very different direction from USA Today. I mean, every newspaper from here to Texas, I mean, all over the world is talking about Jehovah's Witnesses child abuse scandals, and all kinds of other stuff, newsworthy stories. Jehovah's Witnesses are getting the worst press right now. 
And we have little old USA Today over here trying to survive in a new world, writing all this stuff about how great they are. I don't even know. I don't know. It just blows my mind. For those of you who haven't heard, there is a new law that passed in New York. I think all of New York by Andrew Cuomo. It's talked about in Newsweek. Uh, Newsweek addresses it with this article, New Law Could Open Floodgates on Decades of Child Sexual Abuse Within Jehovah's Witnesses. It says, It can take years, even decades, for victims of child sexual abuse to gather the strength to go to authorities. By then, the statute of limitations may have run out, leaving them with no legal recourse. But a law going into effect in New York today could open the door to a deluge of new abuse lawsuits. Signed earlier this year, the Child Victims Act, CVA, temporarily lifts the statute of limitations for civil suits alleging abuse, regardless of the age of the plaintiff or how long the abuse allegedly occurred, or how long ago the abuse allegedly occurred. While the window, quote-unquote, the CVA opens expires after one year, legal experts expect thousands of lawsuits to be filed in the coming months. This could not have been better news in the fight against Jehovah's Witnesses, because for one thing, Jehovah's Witnesses are in New York, like their headquarters are in New York, and this is... this specifically addresses civil lawsuits, not criminal charges. So there's that. You can't really go after somebody for criminal charges, but at least you can go after the corporations for gross neglect, gross mishandling. And guess what? Jehovah's Witnesses, or ex-Jehovah's Witnesses more accurately, are going nuts over this. It's really, really good news. Two such lawsuits are targeting the governing body of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the ruling council for the faith that formulates doctrine and manages worldwide operations. In separate filings, Heather Steele and Michael Ewing, I guess, both named the eight members of the governing body as defendants. Steele, 48, says her first memories are of being molested by an elder, Donald Nicholson, in the mid-1970s when her family lived in New York. At age 10, she finally told her mother, who went to the elders instead of the police, which they're instructed to do. They're instructed to go to the elders instead of the police because they want to stay separate from the world, quote unquote. They want to basically run their own government. That's kind of the goal with Jehovah's Witnesses. They have their own government structure set up. On the local level, you've got the elders who do shepherding calls to check in on people. They're kind of the peacekeepers or, or kind of like the police. They do investigations. They ask questions. They do trials in the form of judicial committees and things like that. Really, originally, excommunication started because these cities were entirely made up of, say, Catholics, for example. Like the store owners the cashiers, the everybodies were all Catholic. The idea behind excommunication was you wouldn't be able to go to a store and buy what you needed anymore. You wouldn't be able to buy anything or make any deals with anybody. The hope is that you just wander off into the woods and die because nobody would rent a house to you. Nobody would sell a horse to you. Nobody would sell you food, would do anything for you. So the hope is that you'd leave their city at the very least. And Jehovah's Witnesses, interestingly enough, I think in 1947, actually called excommunication a pagan practice with pagan roots in one of their watchtowers, which is now considered apostate material, funny enough. An article produced by the Watchtower Society is now considered apostate material. Now they practice that. Now they're all about it. Now they want to completely separate everybody from everything. They want to have their own government set up. 
and they don't want anybody going to the outside government. They don't want anyone going to the world. So if there is some kind of an abuse case or something, they want the elders to handle it, and the elders will instruct people to call the police if they think it's necessary. And when they think it's necessary is when there are two victims, not when there's one, but when there are two. Unfortunately, that, ha that loophole has set things up in such a way that people can take advantage of it and abuse and abuse and abuse and never get caught. And the Watchtower Society is sitting on a giant cache of names of people who have been reported but have only, only one victim came forward, for example, and then they moved to a new congregation and they never said a word about it. So... I don't know. It's a big, complicated mess. I'm just hoping that this lawsuit forces Jehovah's Witnesses' hand. But honestly, if, they, if their hearts aren't in it, if they don't want to change and do the right thing, they're going to find ways around it. They're going to find ways to fight the system any way they can. And they're going to blame the world, quote unquote, for forcing them to do the right thing. Oh, quick side note here. You notice how different this article is from USA Today's article about how great Jehovah's Witnesses are. This is a complete contrast. So the article goes on to say, it was basically them trying to convince us it was in our minds that none of this stuff actually happened or that we had, or that we just had bad dreams, Steele told the New York Post. The elders told us that we should pray for Nicholson, which is the abuser. Eventually, Steele's parents notified secular authorities and Nicholson served three and a half years in prison. When he got out, though, he was quietly moved to another congregation where few knew of his past. That happens. Because in Jehovah's Witnesses' eyes, it didn't happen because there was only one victim. If there's only one victim, then they assume that it, it didn't happen. They write, the guy's name, uh, they write the guy's name down. They wait for a second victim to come forward. And if that never happens, then it never happens. The reason is because the Bible talks about this civil rule, like if you're signing a contract or something, you need two witnesses there to witness the contract signing, or if there's some kind of a dispute over a tractor or over land or something. That's the type of thing that the Bible was talking about with the two witness rule, not tractors, but like goats and stuff, whatever the hell they sold back then. So the Bible talks about the two witness rule in that context, doesn't talk about it in a criminal context. Jehovah's Witnesses have twisted it around to be in a criminal context. We're not talking about child abuse in Bible times. They were talking about just civil issues. Child abuse is not a civil issue. So that's, that's the deal with this. That's why they quietly moved him to another congregation. That's how they justified it to themselves. Ewing was 14 when he was paired with a ministerial servant, equivalent to a deacon, basically, to work as pioneers, quote-unquote, going door-to-door -door to proselytize. I think Pioneers back then probably got 70 hours a month of door knocking. Over the next four years, he says, the older man raped him repeatedly, everywhere from Virginia to New York, where his case is being filed. At 21, Ewing reported the abuse to his father, who, like Steele's mother, went to church elders. At a religious tribunal, both he and his abuser were accused of engaging in homosexual activity and disfellowshipped, a severe form of excommunication where family and community cut all ties. While public attention has focused on clergy abuse within the Catholic Church, a serious problem of child abuse within the Jehovah's Witnesses has also emerged. Attorney Erwin Zalkin, who is representing Steele and Ewing, said in a press briefing. That's very true. In a statement to Newsweek, the U.S. branch Christian Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses said it would not address the cases out of respect for the judicial process and the privacy of those involved. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I bet. 
That's 100% it. Our stand on the subject, quote unquote, this is, I think this is Jehovah's Witnesses. Our stand on the subject of child abuse is very clear. We abhor child abuse in any form, it added. Over the years, Watchtower's publications have addressed this topic with a view to equipping parents to protect their children. In addition, Watchtower's practice is to always follow the law, and we support the efforts of elders and congregations of Jehovah's Witnesses to do the same. They are telling the truth about the fact that they have addressed um, child abuse in their publications. That's true. They discourage child abuse. They think it's wrong, but they think that the Bible is more right than child abuse is wrong, basically. They think that they should be following biblical standards, and that's the best way of living no matter what, period. Whether it's objectively causing harm to people or not. And it is. The two-witness rule is allowing them... The the combination of the two-witness rule and their reluctance to get involved in the outside world, where they don't want their people to call the police or anything. Those are the two things that are really causing the issue here. The governing body members do not approve of child abuse. They just want to follow biblical standards more than they want to protect kids. That's all. That's what it is. And that's just straight up wrong. I'm sorry. They deserve to be sued. They deserve to be sued until they don't exist anymore, as far as I'm concerned. I hope these people take them for every penny that they have so that the corporation has no choice but to close their doors. I've talked to Heaven's Gate members, like active Heaven's Gate members before. They're still around. They committed mass suicide, 39 people dead, in 1996. I think March 26th, uh, the night of March 26th, I believe, 1996. But two of them survived, at least two. One of them was left behind to manage their properties and assets and so on. The other actually left the group before because he didn't feel worthy enough to be part of it. And then they committed the suicide And then he came back uh, afterward and met up with the one remaining guy and was like, it was all true. I know it was true. Really nice guy, actually. They're both really, really nice, although they're copyright trolls. So I'll say that. But yeah, I've talked to both of them at length before through email and other and Facebook and stuff. They copyright strike everything that I ever put out about it. But like I said, they're they're kind. (laughs) Anyways, the point is that Heaven's Gate members still exist. Jehovah's Witnesses, whether the corporation dies out or not, will always exist. There will always be Jehovah's Witnesses. There will always be Mormons. It's going to take a thousand years of culture change to work that out of our system. Even if the corporations die out, there will, there will always be those around who still believe it. And then in 2,000 years, somebody will make up a new religion about it. They'll say, did you hear about this guy 2,000 years ago? Supposedly, he, like, healed a bird. Supposedly, he brought it back to life. Supposedly, people saw blood dripping from his palms when he stood in front of the sun. You know, they'll just make shit up about it. That's how it works. That's, that's human, that's humanity. That's how humanity works. So that's kind of what we have to expect. Anyway, the point behind this whole article is that Newsweek is covering this article. Really glad to see that. USA Today sucks and Jehovah's Witnesses are screwed. They're in bad shape from, what's his name? Andrew Cuomo, I think. The, uh, the guy who signed this law, the Child Victims Act. They're in bad shape because of the Child Victims Act right now. So glad to see that. 
first question is from Erebus of Dawn. Given all of the evidence against Jehovah's Witnesses that they're doing all of, all of this terrible stuff, they have this database with names and everything else, why isn't Interpol and or the FBI or, or whoever else raiding the facilities to get the information? The reason is because there are proceedings happening right now as we speak. It's not something that Interpol or the FBI or whoever else needs to move forward on yet because it's not at a stalemate yet. There are still things being done about it. If it goes to court and they are ordered to turn this thing over and they outright refuse to and decades go by and they just do not turn it over, then the FBI would raid their facilities. But they haven't been ordered to, in court, turn this stuff over quite yet. I mean, they have, and then they, they settled out of court so that they got out of that situation. There aren't criminal charges yet. Everything has been civil so far because it's a corporation. It's hard to file criminal charges against a corporation, especially one whose members that really started all these rules are long dead now. So... It's a little bit of a complicated situation. Before I move on, I just want to hit a few super chats because I've, I've actually gotten a few tonight. One was from Tioga Art. You're doing great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Another from Omega Riley. Sharing a little love. Would have donated more, but didn't want YouTube getting too much of a boost from this. Everyone make sure you like the podcast. Thank you, Omega Riley. You're awesome. Then Omega Riley again. Telltale, your mic quality went to crap. Thank you for telling me I fixed it. And then Jeff Kopp, thanks for your service. Thanks for watching and thanks for listening. The fact that there are people watching and listening means that YouTube is more willing to push it out to more people. So I'm glad that you guys are here listening because it means somebody is going to get the suggestion somewhere down the line that may not have otherwise. And then Icy Wolf says, your mic is still cutting out. Is it? That's weird. Well, I'm recording locally, so it may sound rough for the live stream, but I... My computer's picking it up, so I'll fix it in editing. Disappointing that it's a YouTube issue. Anyway, okay, so the question is from M the Spooky Witch. Do you think that taking away Jehovah's Witnesses tax-exempt status would help the situation? Yeah, um, I have a really big problem with tax-exempt status in the first place for religions. Tax-exempt status is supposed to be designated for charities or groups of whatever kind who are benefiting society in some way. That's what it's intended for. That's why like nonprofit 501c3 corporations get tax exempt status in in some cases. So I feel like if a group or a corporation or whatever has proven to be harmful to society in some way or not productive to anybody except for themselves, they shouldn't receive tax exempt status. It's a it's a government subsidy is what it is. The government was expecting to receive, say, $500,000 this year. Uh, that's just a number I'm throwing out. Jehovah's Witnesses were expecting to have to pay out $500,000. Instead, the government is saying, no, take this $500,000 that you would otherwise have to pay. Keep it and spend it on yourselves. Spend it on growing your organization. That's basically what's happening. It's a little bit simplified and kind of exaggerated a little bit just so that you guys get the idea. But that's what's happening. It's a government subsidy. The government is paying for Jehovah's Witnesses to grow as an organization. They're paying for Scientology to grow as an organization, for Mormonism, for... Methodists for all of them. Now, I think 
all religion is harmful in one way or another, but it comes in degrees. I think generally, for the most part, most small local Methodist churches aren't extremely harmful. There are some out there that are. Jehovah's Witnesses are outright harmful. Like, there's no dancing around that. They're harmful. They're bad. I mean, they, they're doing damage to society. People are coming out as emotionally abused and just completely wrecked from what they went through, like me. I mean, it, it has not been easy adapting to society for me or for who knows how many others have come out of this religion. They are actively doing damage to society right now, Jehovah's Witnesses, and they're getting tax-exempt status. Take the government subsidy away and find them out of existence for every human rights violation. Articles 18 and I think Article 20 are being violated by Jehovah's Witnesses every single day of the Declaration of Human Rights. Every day. Find them for every instance. Find them $5 for every instance of that violation. And they would be underwater before long. I guarantee it. This one's from Fennec Fox. Do banana republics foster a cult-like mindset? I think that... Banana Republic, I, I know a little bit about the history of, of the whole Banana Republic thing. From my understanding, it's where the U.S. government like went in and, and started wars over bananas and things like that uh, and kind of encouraged dictatorships and, and that kind of thing. I don't really know enough about it to speak to it, but generally governments can foster cult-like mindsets, yes, very, very heavily. In fact, religion and governments... Uh, or uh, let me rephrase, religion and politics are very, very closely linked sometimes. And you have to find ways to make sure that, you know, one's not getting intermingled with the other. Like for, for example, let me give you this, for instance, the USSR, like Soviet Russia specifically, um, they were atheist, I think, nationally atheist. And Everybody says, oh, that's the end result of atheism. But in reality, it wasn't really like that. It was, it was a very unique type of situation where, in many ways, God was like a, a competitor for the state in this kind of pseudo-communist dictatorship, the authoritarian dictatorship. And so they worked God out of the culture, largely, and worked government in. So it's, it's, it's really, really easy to get politics and religion intermixed. I don't know that I call Banana Republic a cult. I don't know enough about it, maybe. But uh, yeah, it, it is dangerous and it's something you have to think about. Somebody in the YouTube chat sent me something earlier today. This person, Atheist T-Girl, she sent me a document earlier from the Mormon Church. It's a PDF of a book that was written in 1968, and the name of the book is The Church and the Negro. For those of you who don't really know much about how this operated, or how the Mormon Church operated pre-1970s, they were against African Americans being a part of the church. So they could come to church service and things like that, but they weren't allowed to get into the temple where a lot of really important stuff happens. Like they, they couldn't really be full members. They couldn't have the priesthood, I, I think is actually what it was. They weren't allowed to have the priesthood, which means they were very, very limited in what they were allowed to do. 
and they finally lifted that in the 70s. But before lifting that, they had this book called The Church and the Negro, and it talked all about why black people weren't allowed to have the priesthood. So I I have to thank Atheist Tea Girl. Thank you so much. This book is really, really hard to find. Cannot find a PDF of it anywhere. Hard copies are actually really hard to find too, but hopefully I'm going to see if I can get my hands on a hard copy sometime soon. Either way, Atheist Tea Girl sat there and took a picture of every single page of this book for me. Got 129 pages of this thing. Actually, she let me see. She took 136 pictures for this. I, I can't even imagine how long that took her. So thank you so much, Atheist Tea Girl, for doing this. That That is absolutely fantastic. And maybe I'll have a chance to like go through this in more depth than I'm going to get to this time. But there are just a few key spots that I want to read, a few key pages I want to read here. So the first one is on page 101. Let's start reading from the top. So this is from the chapter, Questions and Answers About the Negro and Mormonism. Oh, this is a question and answer part, I guess. So the question is, did Abraham, Joseph, and Moses marry Negro women when they were in Egypt? This is really not even that old of a book, seriously. It's from like 1968. This is absolutely absurd. Okay, the answer is, for the answer to this question, we go to an explanation by Joseph Fielding Smith. If Abraham, Joseph, and Moses had married Negro wives, their descendants would have been denied the priesthood according to the word of the Lord to Abraham. Had such a thing happened, the Lord would not have called Israel as a chosen people. Neither would he have chosen the prophet Joseph Smith and given him the keys of authority for the dispensation of the fullness of times, as he was a descendant of Joseph and of Abraham. For many years preceding the time of Abraham, the descendants of Egyptus occupied and governed in Egypt. They extended their dominion into the land of Canaan and oppressed the people, but the time came when the people of Asia, who were the, of the Semitic race, rebelled and made war on the Egyptians and conquered the country, driving the original inhabitants further south and up the Nile. These Semitic people, known as Hyksos, or shepherds, for they had many flocks and herds, were in possession of the land of Egypt for many years before the time of Abraham. See, this is all just completely made up. (laughs) I mean, a lot of this is from the Book of Mormon, which makes a lot of assumptions and lots and lots of weird claims with absolutely zero evidence about the goings-on in Israel between two and 6,000 years ago. (laughs) And and so basically what they're saying in this book here is, if Abraham, Joseph, and Moses had married a black person, black wives, their descendants wouldn't have been able to be God's people anymore, pretty much. Or they couldn't have been from the start. Ugh, that, that's only the beginning. You think that's bad? Just wait. Let's look at page 102 here. So why do people have dark colored skin? Here's the answer that the book gives us. The mark of a dark skin in the case of other races is symbolic of a different loss of blessings. It is possible, therefore, for a person with a darker skin than some Negroes to hold the priesthood. Question, why do people have dark colored skin? Answer, undoubtedly, a medical student would say that skin color or pigment is the result of a material known as melanin. The greater the amount of melanin, the darker the pigmentation or color of the skin. This does not tell, however, why some have more melanin than others. The old out-in-the-sun theory is generally disregarded as an acceptable explanation. One may simply point out the example of the Eskimo, whose entire body is covered, with the exception of the face, from birth until death. Yet the Eskimo has a dark skin all over his 
body. If the sun theory were valid, then generations of Eskimos would produce a lighter skin color, but it hasn't. Oh, this is fascinating. I love this book. This is so fucked up. It's ridiculous. Like, they're completely disregarding science here. Like, outwardly, openly disregarding science. Like, the guy knows that it's because of melanin, and he's disregarding that as an explanation. Nope. It's because of God. That's why. I love it. It's just so absurd to read this. Potato, you're not buying this book on Amazon because there are four left and I don't get paid until uh, for three more days. You can buy the book in three days. <laughs> I don't want them all to disappear. I'm taking this live stream down as soon as it's over so that nobody gets the idea to go buy the books. <laughs> I don't want them all to disappear on me. Then I'll release the video um, on this after I buy the book. Okay, let's take a look at another one here. Yeah, honestly, I could probably find it on eBay. If you wanted to buy it, it'd be okay. But I will be upset if there aren't any more copies. Okay, so this is from chapter nine. Church leaders speak out on the Negro question. It says, the prophet's personal views were expressed when he proclaimed, change their Negro's situation with the whites and they would be like them. They have souls, they are subjects of salvation. Elder Hyde remarked, put them on the level and they will rise above me. I replied, if I raise you to be my equal and then attempted to oppress you, would you not be indignant and try to rise above me? Had I anything to do with the Negro, I would confine them by strict law to their own species and put them on a national equalization. The Negroes have souls and are subjects of salvation. Go into Cincinnati or any city and find an educated Negro and you will see a man who is risen by the powers of his own mind to his state of respectability. The slaves in Washington are more refined than many in high places. That's fascinating. So they recognized that they're just people just like us, uh, just like everybody. We're all just people. <laughs> but they do believe that they're cursed. They believe that, I think that they have the curse of Cain is what it is. And as such, are, should not be treated as equals. Or at least at the time, in 1968, when this book was written, they believed that. They believed that they should not be treated as equals. I find that absolutely fascinating. It's four years after the civil rights movement. It took them another, what, like 12 or 14 years after the civil rights movement before they changed everything to be a little bit more inclusive, but they were still kind of outcasts and mistreated in many ways. So that's page 79. I thought that was interesting. There's another bit on page 80. I swear I could read this thing all day. Okay, it says, on the issue of slavery, Joseph Smith had much to say. The Declaration of Independence holds these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But at the same time, some two or three millions of people are held as slaves for life because the spirit in them is covered with a darker skin than ours. The Constitution, when it says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this and establish this this constitution wow there's a typo in this book for the united states of america meant just what it said without reference to color or condition yeah okay that's interesting so joseph smith felt like there was like uh what's the word there was a little bit of hypocrisy in the declaration of independence when it said all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights and they were excluding slaves from that that's that's pretty fascinating 
I can respect Joseph Smith for that, but then I remember all the fucked up shit that he did to children with polygamy. And then I remember how he still felt like black people were lesser than white people. So all of that credit that I gave him just now just goes away instantly. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Okay, let me, let me check uh, page 82 here. There's another bit. Let's start on page 81 and read down. This is the, I guess this is, these are quotes from different uh, major figures in Mormonism throughout the ages. So 1855, I think maybe this was from, I'm not sure who this was from. Uh, it may tell us. It says, formerly the rumor was that they, Mormons, are going to tamper with the slaves. Wow, lots of typos in this book. When we had never thought of such a thing. I will here say a little more upon this point. The conduct of the whites toward the slaves will, in many cases, send both slave and master to hell. This statement comprises much in a few words. The blacks should be used like servants and not like brutes. If it is their privilege to live so as to enjoy many of the blessings which attend obedience to the first principles of the gospel, though they are not entitled to the priesthood. Journal of Discourses 2.184. That's what that's from, Journal of Discourses, I believe. So... I don't know. There's just a lot of really, really interesting stuff in this book. Cain might have been killed, and that would have put a termination to that line of human beings. So they, they're totally convinced that the reason that black people exist is because they're descendants of Cain, who were cursed by God. That's the whole bit. How long is that race to endure the dreadful curse that is upon them? It, it's a super fascinating book, and I'm hoping maybe I'll get to read through it start to finish one of these days. I don't want anybody to buy a copy yet, though, because I want to buy a copy so that they don't all get sold out. That's all I really wanted to talk about for the most part. I think that that was a really fascinating book, and I have to thank Atheist T-Girl again for showing that to me, for sending that to me, for putting all that time and work in, for getting that. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I sent it to Mr. Atheist earlier today, and he actually knew about it already, but he didn't he didn't realize that I had a copy of it. So I, I told him that I got it from Atheist T-Girl, and then he went and bought a copy on Amazon. So instead of having five for sale, there are four for sale. So anyway, um, yeah, so thank you to Atheist T-Girl for doing that for me. I really, really appreciate that. And, uh, and hopefully I'll have a chance to go through it. Anyway, that's all I've got for you guys. Thanks for coming, and I will talk to you next week.